0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled "Greatly Perplexed." It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 11th, 2021. When we study the Gospels, we usually focus on the people who embrace the good news of salvation through Jesus: the shepherds and the magi, Philip and Nathaniel, Mary and Martha. Mary Magdalene, the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, Jairus. These characters show us what belief looks like on the ground, what shapes our own spiritual lives might take, what joys the gospel might inspire if we receive it in faith. But what about the men and women in the New Testament who don't accept the good news? The people who encounter the gospel, hear its challenge, glimpse its beauty, but then turn away. What about the young rich man who leaves in sorrow when Jesus asks him to share his wealth? What about the people of Nazareth who refuse to look past Jesus' humble origins? What about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the neighbors of the Gerasene demoniac? Pontius Pilate. What about Herod, who in this week's lectionary finds himself greatly perplexed in the presence of John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, He's the man who likes to listen when John tells him the truth, who considers John a righteous and holy man, who even dares to protect John from danger for a while, but in the end resists the transformative call of the gospel and kills the one who bears him good news. What might we learn from a failed follower like Herod? I ask this question in part because the story of John the Baptist's death is a brutal one if we're looking for redemption. Consider what happens as Mark describes it. A faithless tetrarch forsakes his wife to marry his brothers. When a courageous truth-teller condemns the incestuous marriage, the truth-teller finds himself in protective custody in a prison cell. Soon afterwards, the tetrarch throws himself a birthday party, gets drunk, and invites his stepdaughter to dance for his guests. Her performance pleases him so much that he promises her anything she desires. The girl, spurred on by her mother, demands the imprisoned prophet's death. Unwilling to lose face in front of his guests, the tetrar keeps his promise and orders the truth-teller's death. Before the party is over, the girl receives the prophet's head on a platter. Where is the good news in this story? Where is the hope, the healing, the joy, the salvation? I know that we Christians are trained to slap all kinds of noble meanings on tragedy. Nothing happens in this world unless God wills it. God never gives anyone more than they can bear. God's plans are always perfect, even when we don't understand them. But in terms of our lived experience, some sorrows, like those that surround John's death, still leave us reeling. They don't yield to our need for shape, sense, and closure. So I wonder if the Gospel writer gives us this hard story for another reason— not to reveal good news, but to show us what's at stake when the good news is rejected. Maybe Herod has something to teach us by way of negative example. Maybe his is the story of what happens when we treat the incarnate truth too casually, too neutrally, when we approach Jesus with curiosity, perplexity, and maybe even fascination, but then get stuck, never crossing over from spectatorship to discipleship. After all, Jesus doesn't want audience members. He wants followers. Mark's Gospel tells us that Herod enjoys listening to John. This is an interesting tidbit. Herod enjoys listening to a man who calls him an adulterer? Why? I think it's because the truth, sharp, hard-edged, and costly though it often is, compels us. It draws us in. In a world overrun with doctored images, fake headlines, exaggerated claims, and blatant lies, truth, even painful truth, is precious. It draws our gaze and pricks our ears. It suggests to us that coherence and alignment are possible. We don't have to live in constant disharmony, our words, actions, and desires permanently in conflict. Something in us hungers for the truth. We fear it and need it all at once. In my imagination, Herod spends hours at a time sitting by John's prison cell, listening to the truth that cuts in order to heal. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, lustful for power and yet dissatisfied with what power has made of him, he asks questions. He probes, he wonders, he hopes, he fears. He learns about Jesus, the one whose sandals John feels unworthy to untie. He asks about God, baptism, forgiveness, salvation. He compares the clear authenticity of John's mission and message to his own compromised, convoluted life. And maybe, maybe, he yearns. But then? Then the rubber hits the road. The time comes to make a decision. Right over wrong, humility over power, integrity over compromise, truth over lies. The time comes to care more about saving a life than saving face. To move from a perplexed fascination with truth to a faithful stewardship of truth. In other words, what happens in the aftermath of Herod's birthday party is the testing of the tetrarch, the testing of his character, his loyalties, his mind, his heart, the testing of his commitment to something costlier than his status quo. How different the story would be if Herod passed this test. But he doesn't. He fails. When push comes to shove, his casual fascination with the truth isn't enough to transform him. He remains a hearer of the good news, not a doer. If you're anything like me, you're thinking, yeah, but I'm nothing like Herod. I've never put anyone to death. I've never sacrificed another human being to hang on to power. I've never committed murder to save face. Maybe not. But I wonder if the questions we need to ask ourselves in light of Herod's story are subtler ones. No, I don't go around killing people. But do I care too much about what other people think of me? Do I value my status, reputation, and popularity more than I do the truth? Am I so bent on conflict avoidance that I harm others with my passivity? Do I prefer stability and safety more than transformation? Is my inner life and my outer life misaligned, one always covering for the other? These are personal questions on the one hand, but very public ones on the other. When I choose silence for the sake of convenience, whose life becomes expendable? When I decide that justice is too messy, chaotic, or costly for me to pursue, who suffers in the long term? Whose vulnerability do I depend on and benefit from to keep my own comforts intact? These aren't good news questions, if by good news we mean news that makes us feel good. But they are gospel questions. They're the questions I suspect John would ask. They're the questions I believe Jesus asks. They're the questions both men died for asking. To his credit, Herod begins in the right place. He begins with curiosity, with perplexity, with desire. It's fine to begin where he does, as a listener, intrigued but uncommitted. The danger is in staying there. The danger is in deciding that a disinterested fascination with Jesus is enough. The danger is in silencing the truth that never stops trying to save us. For books this week, Dan reviews A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith by Timothy Egan. Timothy Egan, born in 1954, calls himself a lapsed but listening American Irish Catholic who is a skeptic by profession. But he wants to remain open to new possibilities, and so a few years ago he walked the ancient Canterbury Trail that winds its way for a thousand miles from southeast England to St. Peter's Square in Rome. Does God still exist in a radically secularized Europe, once the cradle of Christianity, 3,000 monasteries by the year 1400, but where today 8 out of 10 Swedish people identify as atheist? There are really three stories in Egan's memoir. One is historical, and it reads like a good overview of church history, art, architecture, literature, geography, and politics— he recalls the people, places, and events that are associated with the stops along the way, like Anselm and Augustine, the Protestant Reformation, Napoleon, Galileo, and monasteries where prayer has continued unabated for a millennium. Second, he confronts the ghosts that haunt this way in the horrific abuses of the church that are also part of the path the Holocaust, pedophilia among priests, with two billion dollars in settlements, Christians killing Jews, Muslims, and fellow Christians the Crusades, the Inquisition, and so on. This makes for painful, if necessary, reading. Third, there is Egan's personal quest for renewed Christian faith. Quote, I'm looking for something stronger, a stiff shot of no-bullshit spirituality. He seeks to maintain my wonder of what could be while never forgetting what was. I don't want to ruin a well-told story, so I will just say that he resonates with St. Benoit Labra, the vagabond of God and patron saint of wanderers, who remained homeless his entire life and who observed that there is no way, the way is made by walking. What Egan discovered was not served in a stiff shot. A stiff shot does not last. Timothy Egan has written eight other books. He shared a Pulitzer Prize as a reporter with the New York Times for his contribution to a series called How Races Lived in America, His book about the Dust Bowl, called The Worst Hard Time, won a National Book Award. For Films This Week, Dan reviews Taylor Swift, Miss Americana. My wife and I enjoyed watching this Netflix original documentary about the singer and songwriter Taylor Swift, who, at the tender age of 31, has already been an industry veteran for half of her life. The movie premiered on opening night at the 2020 Sundance Festival, Where Swift herself made an appearance to promote the film and the audience gave it a standing ovation. The movie incorporates the sorts of archival footage that you would expect and lets Swift narrate her own story instead of letting the media experts comment about her. There's nothing deep here, but at least at some level Swift talks about her mother's cancer, her eating disorder, her realization that she lived her life for the approval of others, the many and real dangers of global fame, the Kanye incident, her sexual assault trial, and her growing conviction that she had a responsibility to use her influence to speak out about political issues instead of living as a predictably nice and inoffensive person. And lastly, for poetry this week, I think of those who are truly great by Stephen Spender. I think continually of those who are truly great, who from the womb remembered the soul's history through corridors of light, where the hours are suns, endless and singing, whose lovely ambition was that their lips, still touched with fire, should tell of the spirit, clothed from head to foot in song, and who hoarded from the spring, branches the desires falling across their bodies like blossoms. What is precious is never to forget the essential delight of the blood drawn from ageless springs, breaking through rocks and worlds before our earth, Never to deny its pleasure in the morning's simple light, nor its grave evening demand for love. Never to allow gradually the traffic to smother with noise and fog the flowering of the spirit. Near the snow, near the sun, in the highest fields, see how these names are fetted by the waving grass and by the streamers of white cloud and whispers of wind in the listening sky. The names of those who in their lives fought for life, who wore at their hearts the fire's center. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for July eleventh, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.